Welcome back to Talking True Cases. I'm Mark Williams-Thomas. Before I welcome today's guest, Neil Wood, who spent years infiltrating as an undercover police officer, major crime gangs, I want to cover two cases. This case is a crime that's haunted one family and dominated the media for 15 years. A world's nightmare. And that is for the McCanns. The Ocean Club, a holiday resort in Pride de Luz in Portugal, an area and a place that I have visited multiple times. In fact, it's a crime scene that I've visited more than any other crime scene of any other case that I've worked on, and that is apartment 5A and the surrounding area. The 3rd of May, 2007, and in apartment 5A is where, on that night, Madeleine McCann was put to bed in the same room as her brother and sister. Whilst Jerry and Kate, mum and dad, went to the tapas bar and had dinner with a group of friends. Between them, they'd arranged a babysitting service, checking on each other's children. About five past nine, Jerry left to do the first check on the children. They'd agreed amongst themselves that they at different times would go and check on the children. He went into the apartment and checked on Madeline. Madeline, he says, was there. But the position of the bedroom door had slightly changed. This was his account. Now he leaves that and he goes back to the group where they were having dinner in the tapas bar. Five minutes later, a friend, Jane Tanner, went to check on her children. She later told the Portuguese police that she saw a man carrying a child on the street outside. And that was the first sighting of an individual as a possible suspect. We can see there the image the that she came up with that was drawn by a police artist 15 minutes later another friend checks on the McCann children but did not go into the apartment then around half an hour later Kate leaves the group at the tapas bar and goes to check on Madeline she goes into the apartment into the bedroom and when she walks into the bedroom she says that she saw the front window of that bedroom open and Madeline had gone. She then, in a panic, runs back to the tapas bar, and at that point, she raises the alarm. The then resort become involved, they contact the police, and the police arrive. Speculation then mounts as to what could have happened to Madeline. I was in the resort 72 hours after her disappearance. It was now attracting worldwide media attention. Everybody was covering it. And we started to see that there was certain information being fed into the Portuguese media. And in fact, the investigation had turned. It had turned towards Jerry and Kate. And what followed was a Portuguese police detective, Amaral, following a line of inquiry that Jerry and Kate, he believed, were involved in the disappearance of Madeline. Now, Jerry and Kate have always denied this and said very clearly that Amaral has never produced any evidence to support his opinion and later Amaral was removed from the police investigation team into Madeleine McCann's disappearance. I've asked Mr. Amaral a number of times for an interview for him to explain to me what evidence he has to make the allegations that he has made. Then, in 2020, there was a major development when the German prosecutors announced that they had a prime suspect in the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, and they came out very confidently and said that they believe Christian B is responsible for the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. He went out into the world's media, giving the identity of two phones that he said were being used by 
Christian B. And significantly, on the night of her disappearance, placed him outside the apartment in Pride de Lise where Madeline was taken. In 2020, I asked, uh, and sorry, in 2022, I undertook an investigation for Paramount and Channel 5, and my investigation showed that Christian B had an alibi, and furthermore, that the police were not actually able to place him in Pride de Lise on the day Madeline disappeared, nor were they able to say that he was using the phone on the number that they'd circulated. My conclusion is based on considerable evidence. I've seen and spoken to Christian B or communicated with Christian B through his lawyer. And yes, Christian B is a convicted child sex offender who grooms children, but he is not a child abductor in my opinion. And therefore, whoever has, did, abduct and murder Madeline because it's now confident the police have recorded it as a murder means that that individual is still at large. And why am I talking about this case now? Well, the 3rd of May is 15 years anniversary and to date and still we have no idea what happened and where Madeline McCann is. Let me move on to the next story. And this is a story that I'm covering because it's received considerable media attention recently. ITV have done a program about it and there has been a lot of interest. So July 2010, in a quiet Northumbria town of Rothbury, it was rocked by the manhunt to find the killer, Rao Moat. Moat had been out for prison for only two days when he embarked on a shooting spree. Whilst in prison, he was visited by his ex prison sorry his ex girlfriend Stobart, who claimed that she was having an affair with a police officer. Now that was simply said to keep him at bay, to try and stop him from continuing to harass and be interested in her. Unfortunately, it served the other way. It only served to anger Moat more, and as a result of that, his hate for police just grew. Just after one a.m. on July the first, armed with a sawn off shotgun. Moat arrived at the house where Stobart was staying with her new partner, Chris Brown. He lay in wait, and at 2.40, when Brown left the house to confront Moat, knowing that he was outside, Moat shot Brown at close range. He then fired through the window, hitting Stobart in the arm and stomach, and she underwent life-saving surgery. Later the same day, after calling police to warn what he was about to do, Moat shot PC David Rathbound as he sat in his police vehicle on a roundabout. PC Rathbound had previously confiscated a van belonging to Moat. The injury left him permanently blind. Tragically, PC Rathbound took his own life in February 2012. He'd struggled to adjust to life following his horrific injuries caused by Raoul Moat. Moat, after having caused those injuries, then called the police again, this time to confess what he had done to PC Rathbone. He then said that he was going to go on the run and that uh, as a result of that, the police tried to convince him to give himself up, but he wasn't having any of it. Moat then sent a 49-page letter to the police declaring war on them, saying that they'd taken his children away and his freedom and his girlfriend. He wrote, the public need not fear, but the police should. I won't stop till I'm dead. And I remember that occasion very, very well. The fear that was amongst you know, everybody, particularly police officers who were out there, knowing that an individual was determined to try and take more lives. Not of the public, 
but of the very people who serve the public, the police officers, the very people who were trying to keep them safe from him. A manhunt began, helicopters, dogs, the Royal Air Force aircraft was even involved. 160 armed officers from around the UK joined that search. Incredibly, police officers from around all the police force firearms teams collected and moved towards Northumbria. It was the biggest mutual aid in terms of firearms officers that this country has ever seen. On July the 9th, police had Moat surrounded on the banks of the River Coquette. He was pointing a sawn-off shotgun at his neck. Then the events took a strange, bizarre turn. And in fact, many of you will have listened or watched the events uh, unfolding on television when the former England footballer, Paul Gascoigne, turned up drunk and high on drugs. He arrived in his dressing gown, carrying a chicken, a loaf of tiger bread, four cans of lager and a fishing rod. If it wasn't so serious, it would be very funny. He was turned away by the police. The standoff continued, and then around 10 past one on the morning of July the 10th, a single shot was heard. Moat was rushed to hospital, but pronounced dead on arrival. He had shot himself. Police had fired two taser guns at Moat in an attempt to prevent his own suicide. His death was later officially ruled by a jury as suicide. In 2011, Moat's friend, Carl Ness, and another friend, Quarem Awam, were convicted for aiding his crimes. Ness received three life sentences. He'd been with Moat on the night of Brown's murder and his attack on Stobart. And he was told he would face a minimum of 40 years in prison. And Awan, at least 20 years. He had driven Moat around whilst he hunted for a police officer to kill. That is when he injured PC Rathband. So let's move on to today's podcast. Well, I'm I'm really pleased to be joined by Neil Woods, who is a former UK police officer and undercover drugs operative. He's now an active member of an international drug policy reform movement. He worked undercover between 1993 and 2007, befriending gangs and gaining the, the trust of some of the most violent and uh, unpredictable criminals in Britain. It is still one of those very interesting areas. We talk about the police and we talk about the police roles all the time. And in fact, you only need to turn the television on. And many channels are dominated by blue you know, coverage of, of crime, coverage of police forces. But there's still one area that I think probably still remains pretty quiet in terms of secretive. And that is the area of undercover police officers. I can tell you from my policing background is that policing undercover has changed unrecognizably, phenomenally from the period of time when it was first brought into concept into where it is now. And of course, we have had a number of high profile cases which have brought the light on undercover policing, sometimes in a very detrimental way. But let's be very clear. These people who take this on, they take this on as part of their role, but they take it on with the greater risks that I believe it probably holds than the day-to-day -day police officer that goes out on the streets. And of course, it is unpredictable. You put on a uniform and you are at risk, but you take on the role of an undercover police officer and very often you're on your own. Let's hear from Neil and let's see how the impact they had, not just on his life, but on where he is now. So, Neil, thank you for joining us. It's brilliant to have you on board. 
that small summary I've given obviously is a, is a snapshot of what you've done. I'd just like to kind of like go right back to the very beginning. What made you want to become an undercover officer? Well, it, it was by accident, really, um, because I hadn't given it much consideration at all. At, at that point, um, I wasn't very good at being a uniform cop really. Uh, I was one of those people who struggled, you know, you'll remember those probationers who you think, are they going to make it? Are they going to make it to the end of the two years? That was me. Um, but I managed to scrape through, uh, got through to four years, and then I got an attachment with the drug squad. And I was one of a few people who got an attachment. The reason for that was it was 1993, and there was a moral panic going on, the biggest moral panic that, that we ever had, and that was about crack cocaine because tabloid newspapers have been talking about you know, crack cocaine was coming and, and they've been talking about how much it was destroying communities in America for a long time before we actually had any. So at the point that we suddenly had crack cocaine on the streets, suddenly it created a classic feedback loop between the public opinion and politics and it influenced political decision-making. And so the Home Office instructed all of the chief constables to concentrate um, uh, on drug offences more than any other crime with a particular emphasis on heroin and crack cocaine and so in derbyshire where i was uh, the, the the response to that was to try and share the share the expertise of the drug squad and get young young cops like me in attachment but while i was there one of them said do you fancy having to go out buying some crack cocaine which was not a question i was expecting really yeah um but i but i did and they set up a very basic operation really you know a quick ops point they gave me a £20 note and pointed me in the direction of this particular door to go and knock on. So, you know, it was a, a ludicrous sort of half-planned cold call, really. And um, it was so ludicrous because I hadn't had any training. I hadn't even had much time to think about it. So I knocked on this door and this this huge guy opened, opened the door and he says, who are you? You're not a student, are you? I hate students. And I thought, actually, I don't know who I am. <laughs> no idea i hadn't really thought about that so i thought that'll do he says yeah i'm a student yeah i'm a student and he says are you stupid i've just told you i hate students um but he laughed you know he found it funny um <laughs> a, bit, a, bit of, a bit of banter and he, he sold me my little 20 pound stone of, of of crack cocaine um so i went back to the drug squad and holding it out in my hand i said i've got it and that defined the next 14 years of my life well i suppose the all, all of the rest of my life, really. It's brought me on a convoluted journey to be speaking to you um, here today. And let me just take you back to the kind of, so you're, you joined the drug squad and obviously you're a police officer, being a police officer for years. But what's your experience of drugs at this stage? I know when I joined the police force, you know, drugs were, were kind of, I never got exposed to drugs at school. You know, I, I kind of really didn't understand, have much knowledge of it at all. It's very different to the youth of today. What was your knowledge of it? I was reasonably knowledge, knowledgeable about it because I'm a geek with many things, including cultural aspects of society. So I've read quite a lot. Um, like many of my peers, I I can't use cannabis a few times when I was 15 and 16. Um, that was quite quite normal then. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had I had more than average knowledge for for a couple right. of things. So you so you go back and they basically say, brilliant, great, well done. 
And then how does it pan out after that? What What's your next kind of like involvement? And did you did you kind of feel quite positive about that? Or did you think, do you know what? Actually, I was a bit in the dark there, but actually, you know, I've sailed by the seat of my pants and it worked. Or did that kind of give you the buzz? Um, I hadn't quite got the buzz by that stage. It, that came quite quickly. But from that, from that point, I was really just uh, swept along by events because they saw sudden huge advantage of this this was this was literally the answer to to to, to you know their own pressures really to to mm. catch more people and there was a lot of pressure you know there's a lot of money invested into it all, all of the overtime and all of the money went into the drug squad not not anywhere else um so it suddenly went from a few days operation to a few weeks and then in, in no time at all i was doing no less than six months at a time in any inner city area and of course it very quickly because the first time was really easy you know the guy mm. said to me you take care now don't get yourself arrested which was which was very pleasant and civilized yeah. but of course it, it 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 developed very quickly because he went to prison and now I, i'm not suggesting that undercover policing hadn't happened undercover policing yeah. had been happening for a long time but this was in the uk a new type of undercover policing it because traditional what what we now refer to as level one uh, undercover policing the traditional undercover policing is generally via an introduction from an informant it's usually mm. almost all the always pitched at a high level not the ground not the lower level but this um level two as it became known eventually uh type was, was entirely new in the uk so it was rapidly uh developing and, of course and you, what was done to look after you? I mean, what was the well, the potential of walking down the street and someone saying there, there's a, a great shot of you there and uh, you you certainly fitted the bill and um, it, long hair at that stage? No, no, I agree with that. Tied up. I agree with that. that. I had my top knot and my, my, my rave type haircuts. No, I know. I agree with that. So that would be probably two years after I started doing it. Um, but but when, so you, you kind of get into this role and, and what's your, do, do you worry that somebody might spot you or do you worry that somebody might call you out? Well, I didn't, I mean, I, I just got wrapped up in, in developing it because I was suddenly where I've never really been hugely excited by the job because it was always so difficult. Suddenly I was hugely excited by the fact that I was developing and rapidly developing expertise um, and adapting to the problems that were before me. And that was exciting, you know, and I was starting to enjoy the the intellectual exercise of lying, you know, and managing or right. manipulating the people around me. And I was, it was dawning on me that I had some talent for it and also I knew how to develop that. So it was it was an exciting time and, and I, I was starting to enjoy the, 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 the danger of it, even times when I was physically in danger. But in terms of what there was to protect me, there was there was nothing really because I was always very resistant to having any backup nearby because I can account for my own behaviour and my own actions, but to have to think or second-guess somebody else's, that's what would make me nervous. So, you know, I was it was, it was better to be left completely alone. But um, I'll probably come to it later on, but I, the, even though I was enjoying it and, and uh, you know, those adrenaline rushes, I, I didn't realise that it was actually causing me some some mental harm, you know, which which would turn up many yeah, years. Let's, later. 
let's pick that up in a bit. Let's, so let's stay on the journey. So you've now started to do this. You do a, a small buy at a, a door, which is, you know, the kind of like the, the, the test purchase. But then it develops from there and you start becoming much more embedded into kind of like quite dangerous, risky situations. Yeah, I mean, it just kept developing and developing because, you know, the, it's my presence in that marketplace, really, and the presence of people like me, which meant that the marketplace became rapidly more dangerous. And so, mm. you know, get, being interrogated and um, threats of violence just became the regular regular thing, really. And how did you deal with that? How did you deal with that? So, so when someone's threatening you, I mean, do you, give me some sense of, of how vulnerable you were feeling. Well, I'll give you I'll give you one example. I remember for an, an operation in Nottinghamshire, uh, there was lots of pressure because I think it was two thousand and three. So there was lots of gun violence going on because as a gangster, Colin Gunn was at war with everybody else. So there was lots of violence going on at the time. Uh, his his team, the Bestwood Cartel, was lit was just literally at war with everybody, and there were daily shootings going on. Now I didn't get anywhere anywhere near. Uh, his his gang, but there was pressure on me to learn to find intelligence about what was going on. But the closest I got was an introduction to one of his lieutenants. Um, and when I was when I met the guy, he turned up in a car, and he had his twelve year old son sat next to him in this car. And it was a bizarre situation because his twelve year old son was wearing exactly the same two piece tracksuit, exactly the same gold chain round his neck, the same shaved head, and the same trainers. He was like he turned his son into a mini me, and he was bringing him along, obviously, to teach him to, to teach him the business. I think. Well, anyway, he interrogated me. The father did with a knife pressed into my groin. Oh, yeah. And he must. I mean, it felt like about fifteen minutes, maybe a bit less. And you know, that's really unsettling. It's mm. it's it's really difficult to um, stay focused. And you know, the classic interrogation was rephrasing rephrasing questions and trying to catch you out you know trying to catch you out on a, on a change of, of of your what you were saying or claiming but by that point i was quite well referenced into that community and i knew lots of people i could i right. could uh, say knew me so it wasn't too difficult but it is you know you still have that the heart pounding and the and the fear and the intelligence about this guy was that he was over friend over that he was over fond of his knife that he liked to cut people right to the point that uh some that gun colin gun had apparently taken him into a field stripped him naked and put a shotgun in his mouth to give to warn him not to be so haphazard with his knife and this had Gosh. happened just before this so it was really really intense uh moment anyway after the after the uncomfortable conversation and he removed his blade uh, he sold to me and so i was into that you know i was into him then i was gathering evidence against him <laughs> But I mean, you, you asked how I how I dealt with it. Well, I mean, I, ha I I discovered that I had an advantage that that some people have in adrenaline situations. In that, whenever I was in a situation where I felt it, in, you know, in that level of fear, and you get the adrenaline jolt, the effect that I had was that I I, I had the feeling that I had all the time in the world to think think it through. Right. You know, that time actually slowed down, and that. I was, I had this sort of 
you know, I had the fear and I had the heart pounding, mm. but I also had this feeling that it's fine because I've got all the time in the world to think this through. And it's obviously that's just effect an effect of the thought speeding up from the adrenaline, but it just made it feel like it was slowing down. So I think that's an that's that was probably an advantage I had. Um, and is that something that you you were aware you had? I mean, that's quite a. I've heard that often, you know, from people who obviously are quite you know, high pressure situations, particularly running operations and things. Is that you know sometimes the the more pressure, the calmer they are. Yeah, it, it felt like I just you know that you'd, you'd had a sudden burst of super thinking. Yeah, it, it mm. and, and I discovered this a few years before. I think I. And only 1997 was the first time I thought I was going to die when someone entered the door to me uh, with a samurai sword and put that to my throat. Goodness. And yeah, it's terrifying, but yeah, but I but I did, I, I never doubted I could think my way through it. I suppose there's a, there's a there's a slight cockiness to it. And in fact, the first time, you know, the guy with the samurai sword, I came away from that with my heroin in my hand, walked a few meters, and another guy had got said stuck a knife towards my stomach and tried to rob me for the heroin i've just bought so talking about being out of the frying pan and into the fire um, <laughs> that, that was a that was an unusual day at the office so to speak but but i remember when i when i ran away from him because i just ran backwards away from him as he was shouting after me no no just come no just come here a minute like no <laughs> yeah. um, but but when i back when i went back to the debris for that i was just i was giggling you know i i, mm. I was i was having a I enjoyed that. I, can't, I have to admit it. I enjoyed that experience. As the years went on, I got more and more weary. It got harder, and I wasn't giggling anymore. But you know, right. the the younger I was, um, the more I seemed to enjoy it. Something that's often talked about, and, and you alluded to it just now, is this concept of a legend. So your backstory. And that's obviously really important because that gives you the validity and it also enables you to, you know, to be accepted, but also talk very quickly on your feet. How easy and how much work would you put into that? It needed more time um, to, to build the legend as time went on, as the testing got, got much more difficult. Now, the legend building that goes on for level one undercover work is much more substantial than anything that I did. But um, as time went on, I was I was having to spend time in other places. So just before one operation, I was telling I was going to be uh, talk about doing market trading. And so for that, I went to a market in Chesterfield. I went into the local pub that I was going to be talking about. I found out the, the name of the bar staff, you know, all of these kind of sort of Right. details that you might need to dip into now you know you don't need a you know a, a huge tome of them but you just need some things in your toolbox that can be verifiable if you reach that point where it needs to be verified so i mean did I, you... I, did it, I did it sparsely because right that was the level of, of that was the nature of the work that i did but it just got more complicated over time and how did that play out within your fa your, your, your home life i mean you talked in terms of of obviously having to lie and having to be deceitful. How did that play out amongst your loved ones, about amongst the people that you were seeing at the time, your friends? Well, it was made very clear to me very early and quite forcefully, actually, that I cannot tell anybody about this. I can't uh, because it would make it dangerous and people cannot resist gossip. You know, they cannot 
resist making a comment, even the people you think you can trust. So it was made it clear to me that I couldn't tell anybody. So when I was working away, you know, I even had, I couldn't tell the wife what I was doing, really. Uh, I, I sort of, not completely, you know, I hinted at it and, we, you know, she learned not to ask. But but I did have breaks in between operations. So it wasn't like constant work. But even when I was working, say, seven months, I would quite often build into my uh, legend, build into my storytelling that I had to go somewhere on, at the weekend and I would quite often go home and take my kids swimming on Sunday morning, which is quite a peculiar shift of pace, really, buying heroin and crack from gangsters one day and then giggling with the, with the kids, you know, in the swimming baths the next. It was a, a stark contrast. But, you know, I managed it. But I also had a slight difficulty in that I was in a, I was also in an abusive relationship. My uh, my wife was abusive to me, so in some ways, it was relaxing for me to go away and buy crack from gangsters. And also, me being away seemed to take the heat out of that uh, some of the problems in the relationship. And and in terms of that lying, that whole concept of having to be deceitful, what did that do to you as a person? Well, as I say, I I enjoyed the manipulation and the lying. Now, whether that makes gives me a hint of being a um, sociopath or something, I don't know. But I, I I enjoyed it, and but it wasn't the ethics of the lying to people that really got to me. It was the ethics of the work that I was doing, um, because you know I had a very stigmatized view of problematic drug consumers when I went into the police. A very basic uh, way of looking down upon them. But it became quite obvious quite quickly to me that the problematic uh, heroin and crack consumers that I was mingling with and manipulating, they were all self-medicating for childhood trauma. You know, I got to, I listened to them. I spent a lot, a lot of time listening to them. Uh, weaponizing empathy, I, I, I refer to it as nowadays. And they were all you know, the people who had been sexually abused or they'd been uh, physical abuse or neglected children. And, and now I know, of course, that, the academic evidence is quite clear that that's why people use these drugs problematically. So that created a um, situation where I was feeling guilty for the harm I was causing them, because quite often they would get arrested themselves, they would get prison sentences themselves. And in fact, there was one guy who I got really friendly with, actually. I used to go shoplifting with, shoplifting with him, which was great fun. It really was. Um, and he ended up getting a three-and-a-half-year sentence, but when he was arrested because uh, he'd been committing offences on bail when I was spending time with him, um, he ended up on minute-to-minute -minute watch in the cells, suicide watch. And the reason, as he told the interviewing officers, was that he thought I was his one friend in the world, the one person that he could talk to. He'd never been able to talk to, talk to anyone about the things that he was doing. And that was the, fight, the last straw for him, you know, that betrayal that made him suicidal. So that was a very tangible example of the harm that I was causing, and that is that very much affected me and I wrestled with the ethics of that for years and I still kept taking the decision to keep doing the work because I was following the view that the end justified the means uh, that I you know that it was it was worth causing harm to these people these vulnerable people in order to catch the gangsters at the end of the operation and I remember one particular you know the drug scene there was obviously the death of Leah Betts uh, in 1995 now that kind of brought to the forefront of 
of everyone's attention, kind of like the rave scene, the drug scene, you know, the MDMA, the ecstasy, that kind of became a, uh, it was, I suppose it was the height of those drugs getting into circulation. What were you doing around that time? I didn't do that much with the uh, dance music scene. Most of the work that I did was heroin and crack cocaine, which is a very, very different scene indeed. However, mm. I did do some some events, some nightclubs, um, when it was sold to me that, you know, that, that it was organised crime selling the cocaine in the clubs or whatever. Um, and I remember I'd been sent into a free party in about 1997. And free, the free party scene was the, 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 the cultural core of the, of the whole dance music scene, really. And I remember the drug squad saying, yeah, there's some big hitters coming to this party. And I went into it and I was with a companion, a woman uh, who's, who's brilliant, you see, called Kate. Um, and we went in there and there's these people said, oh, do you need some pills? And they gave us some pills. And I says, oh, how much? I was, oh, no, no, you just look like you need them. So they weren't, they weren't selling them. It was just like a hippie scene. And yeah, some people turned up from Notting, but they weren't big hitters. They were all just hippies it was right. so we so we just thought this is not what we signed up for and so kate said there's no way i'm gathering evidence against these people just no way no way and we thought yeah you're right i'm not we're not going to but we're not we're not going to do that so so actually we were quite naughty because um kate said well let's just get stoned and she scored some cannabis and i suppose uh, that's one example of being seduced into the scene really because i just joined in and we both got stoned and i remember coming having danced to some really great techno for a few hours i remember coming out of that thinking my undercover days are gone this is all over now and in some way i was feeling a little bit relieved because it was well, because you got stoned yeah because i got stoned yeah because <laughs> yeah. uh, i thought this is going to be quite obvious you know we're still giggling and like how are we, we going to do this debrief um, but they didn't say a word at all. They didn't say a word. They We just gave them the drugs that we'd bought, gave them a rough description, and, and that was the end of that operation. But, but I mean, to me, that scene was not what undercover work was for. It just wasn't, and it wasn't to most of us, really. Um, and But, you know, you mentioned Leah, ba Leah Betts. I think it's really important to note to say that all of the MDMA deaths are because the drug is unregulated. So it's, it, it's caused by the market being illegal. Just want to talk a little bit about heroin and, and crack cocaine. So in terms of heroin, you know, your, your type of people that use heroin, you often get this imagination, you know, train stopping, you know, this type of concept of these people. Is, are those the people that you were dealing with? Yeah, I was dealing with, I mean, whenever I would go into an inner city area, I would look for the most vulnerable people because the most vulnerable people are the easiest to manipulate. And quite often, the most vulnerable are the people who are using the largest amounts of drugs the most problematically. And they always know that the local uh, sort of regional dealers, the step up the ladder. So, yeah, so the market that I was moving in really was the problematic market of heroin. Um, now, heroin's different to other drugs in that 25% of people who use it develop a problematic relationship with it, whereas with, with all the other drugs, it's around 10%, same as alcohol. Right. And, of course, with heroin, problematic consumption can be very extreme, very, very, and, you know, with a policing background, you'll know just how much crime a very small cohort of people can commit uh, to pay for a, for a heroin habit. 
so yeah that that's the people i was meeting and that's the people i would spend the most time with because they are the most lucrative people they're the people that organize crime they want to exploit that group because they yeah. can get them to increase their uh, consumption to commit crime to pay for it so they're bringing in stolen property that they can trade as well they're really very lucrative people to call which is the reason why we have county lines now you know police mm. police are very good at catching dealers through undercover work through informants the use of children is the perfect um perfect tactic in response to police success and uh, but the reason for that is because it's so lucrative it's the by far the most lucrative drug market, the problematic. Do you think, has there been a, an increase or decrease in the amount of heroin and, and crack cocaine that's on the streets? Well, the amount on the streets is just the response to market, the market. The market size hasn't changed. No, it hasn't. Um, right. The amount, the numbers of problematic consumers of heroin and crack cocaine has stayed relatively stable, really, for the last 20 years. It, it went from about 1,000 in 1970 to 300,000 by 1984. Uh, and that's because we stopped prescribing it. We stopped medicalizing it. Uh, but it's stayed around that that amount since. So it's not, you know, I mean, there's figures to suggest that the production of cocaine has gone up by 35% in just the last 12 months worldwide. But that's not put more on the streets. That's just meant that the price has gone down and purity has gone up. That's because the market size has stayed the same. So how do we tackle it? I mean, I, I'm getting a sense from you is that you're feeling that there is a there's a way to 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 deal with this, and it very much is around uh, decriminalising. Well, decriminalising is a good idea because we shouldn't be criminalising these vulnerable people who need help. We shouldn't be, but that doesn't you know we have to look at this through a policing lens, and decriminalising doesn't go far enough. Because the only way to take the power away from organised crime is to take control of the drug markets by mm. legal regulation. It's all out of control at the moment. What, who, who buys, who these drugs are sold to, and what goes in these drugs is decided by organised crime, and that's not acceptable at all. So we need to take control. Now, it's not just me saying this. I'm part of the international, the growing international movement of police and other law enforcement who are calling for an evidence-based drug policy i'm from the law enforcement action partnership and what we advocate is for legal regulation of all the drugs now how that regulation is is formed depends on the relative risks of the drug so heroin for example is actually the easiest to regulate because we've got the systems in place in the uk already we used to have the british system which meant that if you had a problem with heroin you went to a doctor and the doctor prescribed it to you which meant you were never going to be exploited by organised crime. There would never be any incentive for you to find more people to use heroin, more customers, because there's no business incentive. There's no finances involved at all. It's just between you and the doctor. And at the time that system stopped, there was only 1,046 heroin consumers in the UK. It went up to 300,000 in less than 15 years because the market was handed to organised crime. So for the other drugs, sorry, do you no, no, no. I mean, I think that's very interesting. So basically, I mean, at the moment, my understanding is, is that doctors, the medical professionals, they pre prescribe methadone as a, as, a, as a substitute. Is that right? They don't prescribe heroin, do they? Well, there is still about 150 people in receipt of heroin through the British system in the UK. Is that OK? Yeah. And there was a trial uh, in Middlesbrough uh, where 
the, the problematic consumers were given heroin in a clinic uh, in Middlesbrough, but that was shut down in December, really, through political cowardice, despite the fact that there was clear evidence that it was saving lives, improving people's lives, and dramatically reducing crime, re like really dramatically reducing crime, uh, as, it, as the evidence always shows. Uh, so it has happened. I think it's about to start happening in Scotland if they can just figure out the last bits of the licensing. Um, so yeah, it can happen, but it needs to happen to, you know, to to because overnight, if it was widespread, if heroin prescribing was widespread, it would almost elim eliminate almost all of the county lines drug dealing overnight. So it's desperate. But, but, but would it? So bearing in mind, organised crime is about finances. You know, they don't care w which area it is, and they go for the most profitable. Do you think that being supplied by your 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 doctor would eliminate it to such a degree so you could say right i want some heroin i'm going to go and get it from my doctor but what if you were then actually i want more more than my doctor is going to prescribe are you not going to then go down the black market well that's a really good question actually uh, and switzerland in 1994 they started prescribing heroin widespread to problematic consumers and they used british evidence to inform their policy, 1994, at a point when we went the opposite way and went harder, harder on it. As a result, Switzerland was the only European country to have a reduction in crime through the 1990s. Now, you'll remember how much crime was increasing through the 90s mm. and how bad it was, just how bad it was everywhere. Not in Switzerland. They reduced their burglaries by 50% by doing this. And to answer your question specifically, in Switzerland, and just like the British system, if you found that you'd need, you, it's up to you to, to decide how much heroin you need. And in Switzerland, almost every patient increases their quantity every day because they want to keep having more. And they increase it on average between six and eight weeks. And when they reach the six and eight weeks point, they decide themselves in almost every case to start reducing it because mm -hmm. their life has been stabilised. They're not having to spend all day trying to find the money for the next fix. They've got stability, they've got support, they're going into this clinic where, they, where it's being provided to them in a clean setting, and they can have counselling, therapy. They can even get a job if they want to because they haven't got I mean, a chaotic life anymore. That is quite fascinating, and, and, and you're saying empirical evidence is showing that that actually works. But realistically, could that ever happen in this country? Well, we have a history of it. We have. We don't even know the change in the law to do that because it's us that invented this system. It's called the British mm. system, capital B and capital S. So yes, we can. We just need the uh, the growing political support for it, and it is growing. But it's just frustrating. Where in Middlesbrough, originally that scheme was paid for by the Police and Crime Commissioner uh, mm. Barry Coppinger. And he did that because he's seen the evidence. He knew his crime figures would be better if he did it, and they were. But it's been a change of police and crime commissioner who is more playing to the gallery with get tough policies mm. rather than actually looking at the evidence of that. Policy. And would you do that across every drug? No, it's only appropriate for heroin and to a certain degree for people who are using uh, crack cocaine problematically as well. But it would depend on a, it, there would, there's a lot more work to be done in terms of. Who, who to decide to give that to. But for heroin, yeah, I would be much more liberal even than the, than the Swiss system, to be honest, because the benefits are too, too important. And it's very important for us to dramatically reduce the exploitation of children, which, which that would do. For other drugs, you have entirely different forms of regulation, entirely different. So for cannabis, you have retail outlets, 
cannabis social clubs, things like that. Uh, and we have the evidence now from North America, which proves that uh, a legal regulated adult cannabis market protects children better than prohibition does. Because in every single jurisdiction in North America, where the cannabis is legally regulated, underage consumption has dropped. Uh, e yeah. Imperfect though most of their systems are, it is still good evidence, as we expect, that it protects children better. Because in the UK, it's far easier for our young to get hold of cannabis than it is alcohol or tobacco, because drug yeah. dealers don't ask for ID. And then, fascinating. Absolutely and then, fascinating. So, go on. So for the other drugs in between, most you need licensed pharmacies where you have the regulated products. So MDMA, for example, a perfect example of the drug, a drug that's not banned because it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's banned. And all of the deaths are because it's an unregulated product. And so your focus very much is, is that what your work is very much around now is to try to educate, you know, how drugs, you know, we have to change the policy in relation to drugs and we have to change the whole way we police drugs. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a full-time activist as part of the movement, the worldwide movement. And, you know, really, I'm still fighting organized crime. That's what I'm doing. Uh, but I, I, this is just this is a more effective way of doing it where we can actually beat them or we can at least level the playing field. Because mm. as the National Crime Agency says in their strategic assessments into organised crime, that the value in the illicit drug markets is routinely reinvested into other forms of criminality. Another yeah. way of wording that is that it makes other form of criminality possible because you need yeah. that investment bank in order to in order to do it. So we need to cripple organised crime. And that's that's what I that's that's why i'm active yes but also we, we need to be aware it, it, we need to be aware that how policing drugs is actually causing huge harm the actual mechanism of policing it because you know the police in good faith act on the law and they will you know they will keep um they're in the warrants they will keep making the arrests they'll keep using the informants but Whenever you have a successful operation, you know, you catch a king in character, a gang or whatever, you create a gap in the market. That's an opportunity. And that opportunity mm. is more often than not fought over. And so more often than not, in the wake of successful drugs operations, violence actually goes up. We've seen right. this. We, we see this through criminal intelligence, our criminal intelligence databases all over the world. You know, this is noted by our membership in Baltimore or Melbourne and Australia. Violence goes up. And this is a very stark thing to consider within policing through a policing lens, because you'll know that if you catch a burglar in a community, then burglaries are likely to fall because there are a limited number of people committing that crime in a community. If you arrest a drug dealer in a community, crime will more often go up, not down, mm. because you're not reducing crime at all by arresting a dealer. And also... The long-term action of policing in the drug markets is is, is increasing corruption. Um, now, I don't know how much you've come across corruption, but I've come across it a great deal. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you about one, if if, if, if you like. Um, if we've got time, have we? Yeah, yeah, tell me, tell me. So the um, the interrogation with the knife into, into my groin that I was telling you about, the day after that, that was about four and a half months into that operation. The day after, um, I went into the morning briefing. It was quite an early briefing. And two of my backup team had gone off sick. So we were running short. So I was introduced to two new cops. 
Now, I didn't like this. I didn't like meeting new cops halfway through a job, most unsettling. But if I shook the hand of the first guy, I had no problem with him at all. It seemed fine. The second one, I shook his hand, and the hairs just went up on the back of my neck. You know, instinctively, this guy was wrong. Um, so I went to the to the SIO um, running the operation. I said, look, boss, I can't have this guy knowing what I'm doing. I just don't trust him. And the SEO was brilliant. He says, right, well, we'll exclude them both. They've not been in the briefing. They don't know anything about this. It'll be fine. So I'll, I'll put it out of my head. Twelve months later, when Colin Gunn was arrested um, by a, a brilliant operation by Nottinghamshire Constabulary, when he was locked up and all his team was locked up, it was found out that this cop I'd taken exception to was an employee of Colin Gunn. No. And I used, and I used the word employee specifically because he was paid to join the police. He wasn't corrupted whilst he was in. He was paid to join. And he'd been in the police for seven years by the time I met him. He was being paid £2,000 a month plus bonuses for good information on top of his police wage, obviously. Now, in the debrief for this, one, one senior cop said to me, one senior covert cop said, look, look, Woody, we know this happens. Of course this happens. With this much money involved, how can it not happen? And that's the point because, you know, it's very important to point out that there isn't enough money in any other form of organised criminality to pay for that level of corruption. There isn't. Mm. There isn't the value to do it. Yeah. But it's not just the value that means this kind of corruption is inevitable and that we can't defend against it. It's actually the actions of policing. Mm. So, yeah, I'll try, I'll try and put this, what I mean, in, in, in straightforward terms. So say you catch a kingpin character or a gang which is controlling the supply of heroin and crack cocaine in one half of a city, yeah? Creates a gap in the market. Quite often it's fought over, takes a while for the dust to settle. But the gang or kingpin character that's most able to take up that opportunity that's been created is someone who controls the other half of a city. So what we are doing quite often is we are increase, increasing the market share of people. And in fact, we know um, from our, all around the world that, it, that organised crime use police informants to manipulate the police into getting rid of the competition as well. Mm. So we're creating these monopolies at all levels of the market, both regional, citywide, uh, and internationally. And what this means is where you create a monopoly or a cooperative, then that monopoly have increased their market share and they've increased their disposable income. And if if you increase the disposable income that you control as, a, as in organised crime, you will always invest it in corruption. Always. That's your main drive because that's, how you, the most effective way of developing your business model is through corruption. So this mechanism of policing where we're celebrating the arrests, we're celebrating the sizes of the seizures, actually looks what, look what's actually happening to the yeah. changing drug market over time, what we're doing. And there's examples of this all over the world. I mean, look at the Mexicans. There used to be 20 cartels. Now there's three. Mm. And those, th those cartels are incredibly powerful the gdp yeah. of those cartels is bigger than most west african countries those west african countries have been corrupted they're now narco states we've caused this we've actually yeah. caused through prohibition it is it is huge so what's next for you there what's what's your big focus at the moment well i'm speaking more at the moment on the climate crisis than anything else um 
so I, I'm doing lots of conferences on, on that topic. And so just to extend what I've just said about the corruption is to solve the climate crisis, um, we have to have good governance. Without good governance, you cannot stop deforestation, for example. And so all of the equatorial countries that signed up to the deforestation pledge at COP26, many of them, that signature means nothing because those governments don't control their own backyard. Transnational drugs organised crime control their forests. And because the blanket corruption that causes from that's come from the drug markets, so you've got places like Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Senegal, Honduras, Venezuela, they're narco-states. They're, narco they're not legitimate government anymore. They're run by drugs gangsters. They're not interested in the forest, so that signature's meaningless. And... Mm. That blanket corruption that's been caused makes every other kind of environmental crime easy because the corruption's done already. You've already taken over the government, so you can do what you want now because you've paid for it, which means that drug money is reinvested into, for, um, into logging, deforestation. It's reinvested into illegal mining. It's reinvested into illegal fishing. And this sort of superheated economy of the unregulated drug market is literally destroying the planet. And we can't... Mm -hmm stop it we can't bring in regulations to control deforestation because we don't have the governance so this is a an, an, a piece of the puzzle that many of us uh within the movement are desperately trying to get out there um it's it's taking shape at the moment we're working with some environmentalist groups as well and just trying to bring the movement together but it's urgent really it, it is urgent that we mm. make people understand this link Neil, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, I, I think it's it's fascinating listening to you. And actually, one of the things uh, you know uh, that comes out of this, and I'd be interested to hear from from listeners what their view is in relation to this, is the change in the policy, the change in the way that we deal with drugs, the way that we police it. Because actually, if we allow people to get you know, prescriptions from doctors. The evidence is there. The evidence is there from Scandinavian countries, as you talk about, in relation to reducing that. And, and actually, we need to think much wider rather than just simply saying, do you know what? We'll arrest our way out of this. We'll police our way out of it. And actually, we need to do more. So, Neil, I thank you so much. And keep going with the excellent work that you're doing, both in terms of drugs and obviously, you know, your climate work as well now. And thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was uh, good talking with you today. Brilliant. Take care. Well, that was Neil Woods. Fascinating chat in relation to the work that he's done undercover, risking his life on many occasions. You've heard there him talking about those occasions, but more importantly, changing the way that police should now police drugs. He comes up with a very different and very interesting uh, view in relation to that. And he talks a lot of sense. Actually, you know, politicians should really listen to that. And it is a challenge. Of course, it's a challenge when you're going to allow people to have the very things that destroy their life. Is that right? Is that the right thing that we should do? But actually, if it reduces crime and actually if after 16, 18 weeks they come back and then start taking less, then maybe there is real value in that. I think what he said you know, really does make you think that actually we do need to change because a war on drugs as it is currently is not being won. So thank you very much, Neil Woods. Well, next week, we have Michael Hallows, who's a former Scotland Yard detective. We'll be discussing his book, Operation Abenor, which is the untold inside story of Britain's biggest 
gun running investigation, which he led. It explores how Mac 10 machine guns began appearing in gangland shootings in the 1990s and the length at which Michael and his colleagues in the police had to go to to bring them to justice, including a home office scandal. Machine guns from the investigation are still in circulation today. So join me next week, Thursday, the 4th of May, 12.30, live on Talking True Cases. Until then, look after yourself.